Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 62. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I'll be your host. On today's episode, we speak with the one and only Ross Halaluk, co-lead of the Venture and Security Angel Fund and head of product at Lima Charlie. Gone are the days of one-size-fits-all security solutions that do not adequately address the complexities of modern networks and evolving threats. These general-purpose tools lack the flexibility to adapt to your unique environment and specific needs. As a result, you end up with a fragmented collection of tools that need to be manually integrated and stitched together, leading to inefficiencies, gaps in security coverage, and extreme costs. Sounds familiar, right? Well, not anymore. Introducing Lima Charlie's SecOps Cloud Platform, the modern platform that provides businesses with comprehensive enterprise protection that brings together critical cybersecurity capabilities and eliminates integration challenges and security gaps for more effective protection against today's threats. The SecOps Cloud Platform provides all the core solutions needed to secure and monitor your organization, like deploying endpoint capabilities through a single agent regardless of the technology, alerting and correlating from logs regardless of the source, and automating analysis and response regardless of your environment. Get started for free or learn more about how Lima Charlie is transforming cybersecurity for the modern era with the SecOps Cloud Platform at limacharlie.io. What an absolute pleasure it is for me to get to interview you, my friend. Thanks so much for being on the show with me today. Thank you, Chris. It is my pleasure. To get things started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Yeah, uh, so I'm Ross. I'm a head of product here uh, at Lima Charlie. And outside of my work uh, at uh, Lima Charlie, where I get to work with one and only host of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, I try to stay uh, I try to stay quite active in the industry. So I have a blog about the business side of cybersecurity called Venture and Security. And I do some advisory work with startups, investors, and other participants of the ecosystem. I'm willing to bet that most of our listeners don't know that we met back in 2015. I think it was the second or third year I had run my holiday fundraising efforts in support of food security, and you just called me up out of the blue and asked me how you could help. I'd never had anybody make an unsolicited offer to help like that before, and so you joined me in fundraising. That year, we doubled what we had raised the year before, which I largely attribute to your efforts. In total, I think we raised a little over $46,000. I remember being blown away by how many different volunteer positions you held at the time. What motivates you to give so much of yourself back to the communities in which you're involved? It's a good question. Uh, the short answer is I don't have kids and I wake up at 6 a.m. so I have time to do many things. But uh, the long answer is much longer. So uh, the way I think about it, uh, I am where I am today and to a, la- to a large degree because of the community. The people who helped me grow, the people who shared a, who shared a piece of, a, of an advice when I was uncertain in what, in what direction to move, and people who grew with me, people who moved in, in a similar direction. And so uh, I'm a huge believer in the power of, of the ecosystem and in the fact that if you do right by, by the people and you, if you help those around you, you will get even more back. Nowadays, frankly, I don't have as much time for more traditional volunteering, but I do try to help people when, whenever they reach out. Most commonly, early stage startup founders or uh, investors or, or essentially anybody else. I genuinely think that the power of the community and the power of the ecosystem is real. And frankly, it is, it is after all, 
what places like the Bay Area have and, and the reason why they thrive. Many people look at the Bay Area and they and they think that it's a cradle of innovation because there is a lot of capital. But in reality, capital is there because of the ecosystem, because people come together, help one another, make connections, and help one another make crazy ideas happen. And so for me, that, that community spirit and the idea of helping, uh, helping where you can and, and trying to give back is just a part of who I am and what I, what I enjoy. Lovely. That's a modern version of karma at work. Exactly. Yeah. So over the last few years, you've been doing a lot of research and making a lot of observations about cybersecurity. You've looked at market trends, different approaches taken by vendors, and pretty much everything under the sun. All of these thoughts, or the majority of them, I'm assuming at least, have been documented and explored in your substack, which you just mentioned, which is called Venture and Security. Can you tell us about Venture and Security and what your motivations are for continually publishing these industry thought pieces? So I believe that in order to innovate in the industry, one needs to understand the mechanics of the space, the motivations and drivers behind different different players, and also the trends that shape the market. When I talk to founders and practitioners from different countries, whenever I read the industry news, attend industry events, you know, Black Hat, RSA, B-Sides, and, and others, Mission Control, uh, I start connecting the dots and noticing trends, patterns, and changes that are happening uh, happening in the space. Initially, I did it to better understand the industry myself, but over time, I started sharing more and more of that of that understanding with others, and that's really how the blog started, how it grew into what it is today. Overall, I think I think people should be encouraged to share more, and uh, essentially, there's so many people in the industry who have been in this space for a long time, who have accumulated a wealth of knowledge, and those people should definitely be doing more uh, speaking, uh, sharing it in podcasts, blogs, and so on. Do you see any problems and trends in cybersecurity as unique to the industry or many of them shared by other areas of technology? It is an interesting question. I think cybersecurity is not unique. At the end of the day, it's it's an area of technology, and as, as any other area, there are certainly some characteristics about it that aren't as pronounced in, in other industries, but it is a part of tech and a lot of the same trends impact it. Among the things that make it different, in my view, are the fact that cybersecurity is a horizontal, not a vertical. Security affects all types of customers, all types of industries, all kinds of technologies. Whether we are talking about SMBs, or enterprises, whether we are looking at AI or, you know, 3D printing, fintech or retail, or any, any other space uh, you, you can think of, all of them need to be secure. And then on top of that, there is a very high reliance on trust when it comes to the purchasing decisions. Security tools are, are very hard to evaluate, much harder than, than many other tools across other industries. And because they're so impactful, in order, in order for a purchase to happen, the buyer needs to have a high level of confidence that the vendor is going to be there for them when something bad happens. So there is, there is essentially this betting on the future relationship that's, that, that's going on. Uh, and I think it, that part is also quite unique. There is definitely many more items that I can, I can call out, but overall... I think saying that security has nothing unique would be a mistake because every industry does, but also looking at the industry outside of the context 
of the broader tech ecosystem, in my view, is also not not the right thing to do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting observation because I feel in this race for innovation, most areas of technology have sort of ignored security in pursuit of speed and getting to market faster. And I think we're seeing that catch up now as security becomes a bigger issue for people to to worry about and be concerned over. Yeah, uh, probably. I don't know if I am. I don't know if I necessarily share the same level of optimism. Uh, primarily because uh, when we look at the way internet was designed, we we sort of like everybody who is in security is accepting the fact that yes, the internet infrastructure was designed uh, with with little uh, thinking ab- about security. And one of the primary reasons at that time was because, well, we could not we could not imagine that people are going to be using the code to attack one another and to force it into doing what it wasn't designed to do. And uh, there is a lot of there is a lot of this sentiment in the industry when you talk to security practitioners who say that, oh, if we were building internet today, we would have definitely made it much more secure. And that could very well be true. But then you look at the emerging technologies, you look at, at, at things like, like artificial intelligence and machine learning, and you see us repeating the same problems over and over and over again. Like even, even this time, you know, when ChatGPT got, got released, there were so many security challenges. And, and many of those challenges could have been prevented by simply having, you know, 10 security people trying to exploit the chatbot. But for some reason, we still we still repeated the same mistake, and we decided to take something to the market that was fundamentally insecure. And I think I think this this tendency is just going to going to persist. I don't I don't anticipate that one day we will somehow start putting security first. That's just from the business standpoint, it doesn't necessarily make sense, or at least that's what we think. It's a race to who can get there first and grow faster, and security is hard and takes longer, so. It gets pushed to the side. Yep. One of the other projects that you're spearheading, which shares the same name to some degree, is the Venture Insecurity Angel Syndicate. I think this is a very unique and interesting approach to supporting and growing products in the market. Can you explain to our listeners what the Venture Insecurity Angel Syndicate is? Yeah. So the the underlying premise is that security as an industry is evolving. More and more companies are starting to realize that security is a process, not a feature, and you cannot simply buy buy a product, uh, deploy it in your environment, press an activate shield button and become safe. Like security is a complex issue. And in the center of all the changes we are seeing in cybersecurity are people, are security practitioners. And it's not just because there is a the, the talent shortage, but it's also because the attackers are well-funded and well-motivated people. And we need people on the defense side to stop the bad actors from causing harm. So in my view, security professionals, security practitioners are critical to essentially advancing the practice and securing their organizations. But not only that, they're also critical to how the buying decisions are made in the industry. And when I ask CISOs how they select what solutions to use in order to solve security problems in their companies, the answer I hear a lot is that, well, People on my team try stuff and recommend what works and what solves our problems. Sure, the final sign-off and the buying process would still typically be orchestrated by CISOs, but a lot of the security leaders are starting to to delegate it to their teams to do the initial assessments to understand the proof of value. And 
On the other hand, what I'm noticing is that as security is becoming more technical, a lot of the traditional investors are, are struggling to evaluate ideas and solutions, particularly at the very early stage when there isn't, you know, there, there isn't uh, revenue, there is often no product. So there are no usual business metrics that could be used as proxies to understand the, how the company is doing. And at that point, you need people who have a deep domain expertise, people who are doing the work on the day-to-day to, to be able to assess, is this like is this something that is addressing a real need in the market? Is this something solving a real problem? Or is this just, you know, an ambitious founder with a great idea that is very unlikely to work because it doesn't solve the pain point that security teams are experiencing? And for that, I believe that security engineers, SOC architects, detection engineers, penetration testers, threat researchers, and practitioners of all kinds have a, a, a great ability to to do that thinking, to do that evaluation. So what we what we've done, myself and uh, and a friend, we brought together a, a number of security practitioners to look at the industry and and make some some early stage investments and and support companies when they're just starting. The time will tell uh, to what degree this 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 will become a successful enterprise. But in my view, regardless regardless of how the how the venture and security angel syndicate uh, unfolds, I think there there needs to be more interest uh, from security practitioners towards the business side of the industry. Like it's great to solve technical problems and it's incredibly important, but at the end of the day, you have to find a way to commercialize innovation and. If you're not interested in the industry, if you're not interested in the dynamics of the industry, it becomes it becomes hard to do. Something I've heard you talk about a few times, which is this evolution we're seeing in the market where we're moving from this idea of promise-based security to proof-based security. Can you maybe explain what the difference is and what that transition looks like to our listeners? Yeah. So uh, traditionally, companies were looking to secure uh, their operations by relying on the promises of vendors to keep them safe. When a CISA would sign a contract with, with a new vendor, it would essentially buy a promise that this vendor would stop the attack whenever it happens. And for, for the longest time, this approach worked. And I, it, it is worth saying that many vendors, many product and service companies in this space have been doing and still are doing a fantastic work preventing most common attacks. The challenge is that as the number of, of attacks is growing, mature security professionals have come to an understanding that it is, it is just not possible to stop all the threats and pre- prevent all the ransomware and all the APTs and so on, despite what the marketing materials may claim. And so in parallel, like while this is happening, we, also, we are also starting to see that there is a fairly weak correlation between the results and security spend. Just because an organization is investing more money does not necessarily result in in a better security. Uh, At the same time, businesses are starting to demand measurable results. That has happened with all other functions of the business. If you are a sales team, you you have some kind of KPIs and you have a way to measure those KPIs. You would not you would not retain a sales team that says, yes, we are doing better, while the numbers do not necessarily show that that's the case, right? You need a way to to measure their performance. In the same way, there are KPIs and there are metrics for products, for, for product management. There are KPIs and metrics and innovate to track performance of engineering teams. When it comes to security, however, 
there is there is a lot of that of that trust based approach where well we are spending X amount of money and we are hoping that the security team is 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 going to do better. But simply because you've you've in, you've deployed you know five, ten, twenty products does not necessarily mean that you're doing better. So a lot uh, like a lot around this uh, idea of the uh, evidence based security comes down to the fact that security has to be testable. And what we also see is a growing maturity of security pr- practitioners, more and more people with engineering mindset and less people who, who simply know how to use a certain tool. Those changes are happening. I think they're happening much slower than, than many would like to, but they are. And it's almost inevitable that as security is maturing as a discipline, it will become more closely resembling of software engineering and other technical practices. So at the core, uh, as I've said, the ability to verify and test security posture is the sort of the main, the main idea behind uh, the uh, evidence-based security. And instead, like whenever that, like when a company takes this approach, instead of saying that, hey, we've deployed the vendor X and that vendor is taking care of our company, it should be able to say, okay, here is the kind of coverage we have. Here are the kind of techniques we are detecting in our environment. Here is ex- exactly how we are detecting them. And here is what's going to happen when they're detected. So it's being able to, in the empirical way, assess the defenses of the organization instead of relying on somebody else, on a third party, however great that third party is, to, to, to do security for the company. So are you talking about things like the MITRE ATT&CK framework, or is this more like unit tests and internal testing of the processes? In, in my view, uh, I mean, MITRE is, is a part of it. There, there are now uh, some other frameworks for uh, software security that sort of take, take the same approach. There is a lot around the unit testing. There is a lot around, there is a lot around continuous integration, around the CI/CD pipelines, like version control. Like all, like all of that, all of that cool stuff. And there is a lot that has not been adopted by security before. So you, you are starting to see essentially security as code, detections as code, infrastructure as code, and, and uh, compliance as code. And I think as, as we move into the future, we will see more and more of that. I think proof-based security is often conflated with product-led growth, which is not entirely true. Proof-based security is more of an idea where product-led growth is sort of a tactical approach for companies to enter the market, but that really embodies the concept of proof-based security in a way. Can you describe what a PLG approach to the market would look like for a cybersecurity vendor? Yeah, that is a great question. And also the one that it's fairly contentious. I know there, there are some people who believe it, it can, like PLG, like product-led growth, can be a great, uh, a great go-to-market strategy for security companies, others do not necessarily share that belief. You know, when I think about PLG, I, I, I want to go, I want to sort of go down to the basics and then try and build and build on that. So when I think about product-led growth, I think about the ability to leverage product as a vehicle for growth. And in my view, PLG is essentially synonymous with practitioner-focused security. What does that look like? Well, Let's just say a security practitioner is looking for a solution uh, to the problem in their organization. The question is, are they more likely to test a tool they can access 
whether it's a you know through free trial or free tier or maybe 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 through through the open source, or are they going to look for a tool that requires them to talk to a lot of sales uh, sales reps first? Well, it depends. If the brand recognition is fantastic, if the company is really widely known in the market, then of course it is not unlikely that the that the security team will go off and will sit through a number of of, of demos in order for them to to access the product and do a POC. But if it's not a known tool, then the more obstacles you have, the less likely it is that somebody is going to give it a shot. So what I do see a lot is that some founders assume that all they need to do is build a great product and then let let users find it and just flock to the product because of how awesome it is, and they call that PLG. Well, in my view, this is where, where most of the d- debates around the suitability of, of the PLGs uh, come from. And that's because build it and they will come is not the same as product-led growth. It just doesn't happen, especially in security. What I see more often is, is something like this, when CISO would delegate the initial uh, evaluation of the tooling to their team. They may give the team one, two, or three products they would like to, be, uh, to, to, to see tested. And some security teams will just do that. They're, they will evaluate the tools they were given. But others will go deeper. They will look for alternatives. They will, they will do some Googling. They will ask their friends. And they will try to see if they can find something accessible. They'll give it a shot. So for me, when I think about PLG, what I think about is that having a product that can be easily accessed, tested, and, and, and essentially like, somehow implemented in in an organization can help early stage startups to get some serendipitous interactions to 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 get exposed to some early customers and so on however i also don't see it being a, a perfect strategy for growth in a b2b space in a b2b enterprise and enterprise space in particular whether we are talking about cybersecurity or, or or many of the other verticals sales is still critical and yeah that's what comes what comes to my mind when I think about PLG. And I think we see so much of it because one, there's the promise of, you know, this growth that can happen organically without having to spend lots of money on marketing and sales, but also the kind of hands-on people that build these products, that's how they like to find new products. So yeah, I think for the early stage, there's a lot of advantages and promises of this approach, but as you grow bigger, it's not necessarily an ideal way to access enterprise and in larger organizations that have a more traditional sales process in place. Yeah. And frankly, I think that's the dream of every of every company. We are just going to build an amazing product. And as soon as people will hear about it, they will they will visit our website to check it out. And after 10 seconds of scrolling through the website, they will get so charmed and of course, they're going to sign up for the product. Of course, they're going to take their time and 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 give it a shot. Of course, they're going to deploy it in their Humla. It's just it's just a no brainer. We are so awesome. But the reality is that there are so many products, and there is there is a very limited time in the day. And on top of that, in cybersecurity in particular, well, or not just in cybersecurity, but in enterprise in general, every single purchase has to have a budget line item. So if what you are doing is tackling like a known issue in the known product category and there is a budget for it, then it is much more likely that the product can be evaluated against the competition compared to if you're tackling something that is not a known 
category or not a known problem. In which case, yes, people may have a look, but they will not necessarily go super deep because they, they know that for this quarter, they do not budget to, to look at the problem X. Yeah, and that problem is confounded by how many different vendors there are in the cybersecurity space. I think while reading through one of your sub stacks, I picked up there are over 6,000 companies currently operating and trying to get a foothold. Do you, do you think these organizations are all attacking unique problems or is security that complex? It's a good question. Uh, uh, there is uh, there is closer to, I think, three and a half thousand of, of vendors that I know uh, Richard Steenon from IT Harvest, an industry analyst, keeps track of. And he does an absolutely fantastic job cataloging all, all the vendors and, and, and getting everybody who gets on his radar into the system. But yes, there there are many vendors. There's there's probably more than three and a half thousand because uh, a, a large number is, is in stealth, and I would assume uh, out of those, a large percentage today are building AI powered tooling. But wherever the number is, yes, it is a lot of vendors, and the market is indeed saturated. What's interesting is that if you've never worked in any other industry but cybersecurity, then it may feel like a very security-specific issue. It isn't. I've built products in e-commerce and fintech, and you cannot imagine how, how, satur- how saturated and competitive those markets are. Fintech alone has over 30,000 tools. It's more than 10 times uh, what we have in cybersecurity. And of course, when you are a security practitioner, you don't want to think about you know w- what's happening in other industries. But the harsh truth is that, yes, there are many vendors. There are some reasons specific to cybersecurity why that is the case in cybersecurity. But more broadly, if you look at if you look across different industries, we live in like 2023. It's a competitive market. Everybody who wants to start a company has the means to do it. There is capital. There is the ecosystem. People have great ideas. Some are bigger than the others. People are driven by different ambitions. And the access, like the, the the ability to start a company, has been democratized. So of course we will get we, we will get uh, a large number of tools, cybersecurity or not. It the number is just going to grow. There are, however, some reasons that I think are specific to cybersecurity. And one of them, we probably the number one reason in my view, is the heavy reliance of, on trust during the purchasing decision. And I think I think it's worth mentioning some, like it's worth talking a, a bit more in depth about this one because there is some context that I think is not being discussed in the industry enough, and that is that when a new when a new approach or when a new idea is proposed in cybersecurity, it takes a long time for the founders to get the customers. It takes a long time for the customers to build the conviction about this new approach, to uh, to educate themselves about the problem. To, to do the POC and then to eventually make the purchasing decision and, and, and deploy it in their organization. Because it takes such a long time, it can be a year, it can be two, it can, it can be longer. Because it takes such a long time, no company in the industry can organically blitz scale. So no company can take a large percentage of the market no matter how much how much venture capital it raises. So what ends up happening is that by the time an, a, a new idea gains traction 
there are already many similar companies tackling the same problem in different geographies and different markets. So like whether you look at, I don't know, asset management or EDR or, or, or any other problem, by the time it became a thing and by the time industry analysts started talking about it, by the time CISOs understood and started discussing in their circles that, yes, there is a solution and this is, this is what it looks like, we, we, we already had like tens and tens of, of security companies. So on top of that reliance on trust, well, the reliance on trust also has a, ge- a ge- geography layer where a company in the U.S. would prefer to trust the U.S.-based uh, security provider. A company in France would prefer to trust a, a local security provider and so on and so on and so forth because the data security startups are handling is so sensitive. So now you've got you've got those many, many trust related reasons why it is so hard to scale a company. And this inability to scale companies fast is also very easy to see if you if you take a, a look at the market leaders. There is no single market leader in the cybersecurity industry that owns more than 10% of the market. Not even Microsoft, not even Palo Alto. So the market is incredibly scattered. Then the other reason, in my view, why there are so many uh, cybersecurity companies is that in this industry, companies do not fail as often as in many others. So what this trust-based adoption and slow sales cycles lead to is that instead of having a limited few companies that take mar- market by storm, we end up with many companies, each of whom owns a small percentage of the market, not enough to become a leader, but enough to survive and to, to exist for, for a very long period of time. So instead of just you know, either failing fast or succeeding fast, we get companies that, that continue to raise capital and continue to, like, they have paying customers, not a large number, but enough to have, you know, five, 10 people working, working on the team and, and ship, ship some software. On top of that, there is the continuous flow of venture capital, which in many ways prevents natural selection. I think it is changing nowadays with, you know, with the economic downturn. But a year, two years ago, especially during the pandemic, because cybersecurity was such a hot field, the number of VCs with no expertise in cybersecurity, with no ability to evaluate uh, security startups, the number of VCs who just went all in and started writing checks to security companies was incredibly high. Ideally, in the ideal economic conditions, you would want a company that is solving a real problem to hit their metrics and get the right support from the investors and also get the revenue from the customers. And, And by doing so, to continue growing. And then companies that do not solve a real problem or don't get as much, you know, maybe don't execute well or, you know, for, for, for whatever other reasons, get selected out. I don't think that has been happening for, for the longest time. Like even the most struggling companies, as long as they had a great idea, they would get, they would get a check from the investors and just saying, yeah, go, you can, you can make it big. And so for that reason, the natural selection didn't happen. Essentially, there are many reasons why I think cybersecurity industry has a large number of vendors. But also, as I've said, if you look at other industries, like you realize that this isn't in any way specific 
to this to to security. The the reasoning why security why the number of vendors in security is high could be somewhat unique, but the the outcome isn't by any measure. I thought that was an interesting observation about how no company owns more than 10% of the market, because I think in most areas of technology, you get what's called a category king, yeah, who ends up with 90% of the market and everybody else fights over the last 10%. But yeah, that's a very interesting observation. Um, in all this vendor noise, do you see any positive trends? Are we moving towards a brighter and more secure future, or is it just going to continue to be more of the same? Oh, man, it's a billion dollar question. I think I think security is is very similar to an arms race. You know, if somebody builds a new offense and then people create a new defensive measure and then the process keeps on going and going and going. When I think about the future of security, I uh, what comes to mind is a convert is a is another podcast that Jason Chan was on recently. And what Jason uh brought brought up was was quite interesting to me i i never i never thought of it from, from that perspective but it made it, it made so much sense so jason was talking about uh, the issue with with bank robberies and so today in 2023 despite the very very best effort there is still over 2000 bank robberies happen in the united states every single year We've had over a hundred years of banks that have all the resources they can, like all the resources you can imagine, access to the very best professionals. They've tried, like they've invested into 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 security heavily. They they've pulled in all the resources. Moreover, every single bank is a physical, very isolated location that you can, like, you can absolutely sort of circle around, and like you can. You can put in the measures, you know, nobody, like, it's not too, it's not as easy to access bank from, from another country as it is to log in into the, to, to access somebody else's computer. But despite, despite so much money and so much investment that we've funneled into getting banks safer, the, the number of quote unquote breaches is non-zero. So I think security is somewhat similar where we probably won't in any foreseeable future suddenly get the number of breaches to zero. But what we can do, we can reduce the number and we can reduce the order of magnitude when the breaches happen. We can reduce the impact, like the order of magnitude of the impact, and we can do it by building securely from the ground up. On the topic of consolidation and the idea that, well, we can we can get we can get security vendors to somehow consolidate i think in many ways it is cyclical right on one hand security professionals want the flexibility of being able to trust different vendors and different approaches and pick and choose whom they use on the other hand they don't want to have you know 65 or 100 separate tools that they have to stitch together i don't know to what degree we will get like one big platform that does everything, everything security in the years to come. What I think is much more likely is that we will, somebody smart will be able to take advantage of the data gravity effect. I, I've talked about it in one of my, in one of my articles, but the, the idea around data gravity is that as all data, in our case, as all security data comes into one place, it starts to accumulate mass. And when it does it, 
it attracts products and services around it. I think we see it today with, with, with some of the data lakes and cloud providers when instead of, let, let's just say, if, if, if all of your data is in, in Snowflake or in GCP or, or somewhere else, then instead of going through the purchasing process with, with some new vendor in order for them, like in order for you to deploy them in your environment, I would picture a universe where you can go to the marketplace offered by that vendor and scroll through a number of different approaches and a number of different providers. And then in one click or in two clicks in, in a very easy manner, you can subscribe to whatever services, to whatever value they offer and have that applied in your environment. Like, again, it remains to be seen who is, like, who is going to win in that platform game. Again, data gravity effect is sort of vendor neutral. It's a concept that says if you get all of your data into one place, it becomes very easy for, for, the, for the entity that owns your data to offer adjacent security, security solutions or non-security solutions if we are talking more broadly. You see now, you see companies like Splunk, which have a lot of the data do, doing the same. You see companies like CrowdStrike doing the same. You see, you know, you see Sentinel One and, and their marketplace. So a lot, like any company that starts to accumulate security data has the incentives to, to sort of expand the market. And obviously they cannot build everything in-house. They have to build the marketplace. So I don't, I don't think we will ever be in, in place where there is just one vendor who does everything security and people have no choice but to work with that vendor. But what I do think is, much more likely is that we will have a platform where like we like we will get to into the place where we have a platform and people get the ability to use a lot of the capabilities of that platform but for adjacent capabilities that the platform doesn't offer they can they can sort of use plugins or add-ons or however you call them built by by external parties that sort of plug into their data and do whatever they're designed to do. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it's a bit of a philosophical answer, but sort of to go back to your question about consolidation, yes, of course, as more acquisitions happen, we will be seeing more and more founders drawn into the market by the, by the desire to, to start something and, and, and exit a company within a relatively short period of time. And we will see large companies probably becoming larger. But then there is always going to be a need for new ideas and new approaches, and those will be built by, by smaller startup teams. I cannot imagine a large enterprise with thousands and thousands of people uh, remaining innovative the way it, it would have to be in order for it to keep up with, with the changes in the security industry. That has always been the case, and I think it will continue to be the case. You mentioned uh, Splunk, CrowdStrike, and Sentinel One, but it sounded to me like you were describing Lima Charlie in our add-on marketplace. So, yeah, I am like I'm a head of product at Lima Charlie, and I and I am here for a reason because I do believe in what we're building. I do believe in what we are doing. But as a yeah, as a as a vendor neutral podcast, <laughs> I do not re directly <laughs> recommend a specific solution. Yeah. Oh, awesome, Ross. This one was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to me. And sorry, I can't help plugging our product wherever it makes sense. So I think, honestly, I, I think in many ways, we're, we're being almost too humble about what we do. 
Like there is there like we we are investing a lot of time and effort in in the community initiatives, but I don't think we talk enough about the value proposition of what we do. So there is definitely this is this is probably not a podcast level conversation, but there is definitely more more we need to we need to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll put something in the calendar. We can take it offline. Let's do it. Okay. Take care, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.